content warning. The following episode includes discussion of illicit drug use and murder. Listener discretion is advised. It's strange to think that my 20-year high school reunion is this year. Some of my classmates have grown children. That's a strange thing to think about because I don't feel like I'm that old. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school in the city of Detroit. My parents sent me there because they thought I was boy crazy and figured that placing me in that environment would keep me away from crushes and relationships. But that's not how anything works. My senior year of high school, I dated a guy we'll call Austin. I briefly mentioned him last episode. He was the guy my dad could read by looking at him, but I didn't give him a name at the time. Austin and I worked together after school at a local business. He was cute, to be sure, but what attracted me to him was his sarcastic sense of humor and his knack for storytelling. The only thing was that he was into drugs. Pretty much anything he could get his hands on, including narcotics, though he enjoyed marijuana and mescaline the most. My parents obviously did not approve. So I would claim I was hanging out with friends, going to movies, stuff like that. But in reality, I was hanging with Austin. I never did drugs with him. As I mentioned in previous episodes, it was never my thing. But simply hanging out with him, with him carrying drugs, could have gotten me in a lot of trouble. The relationship with Austin wasn't exactly the healthiest. One time he said to me that one of the reasons he dated me was because since I was black, he thought I knew how to get him drugs. We'll get into that in a second, but yeah, to make a long story short, we were together for about a year before we broke up. The fact was though, I was black and I didn't do drugs and I didn't have drug connections, mainly because I was a square who didn't do drugs. Even if I wanted to, my substance abuse therapist's father would probably figure it out and kill me. That said, Austin wasn't the first person I'd ever met that was into the drug scene. At the time, I knew a number of people who did drugs, although it was mainly weed. Remember, this was in the 90s before the patchwork cannabis laws we have now. So at this time, weed was solidly illegal pretty much everywhere. But even before I met Austin, who happened to be white, I knew both white and black people who were into illicit drugs, probably more white people than black, yet it seemed like the police treated these people differently. Most white people I knew who smoked weed or did other drugs never really had brushes with the law. The worst I had ever heard of at that point was that Austin and a friend got caught once in a drug sting by Detroit police, and the car they were in was impounded. They were forced to walk to a payphone to get a ride home, but no charges were filed. But I had a friend whose boyfriend at the time was in and out of jail for drug-related crimes, and that seemed to be par for the course for black people involved with drugs. Even then, at 17 or 18 years old, it seemed clear to me that it's not like being black meant that we were more likely to do drugs. Later, I found out that that doesn't even bear out statistically. There is no racial disparity in drug use but black people are much more likely than white people to be arrested, charged, and convicted of drug-related crimes. That has been the case for decades. Nothing is new under the sun. I'm your
your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pastor Podcast. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. We're now in part three of a multi-part series on the U.S. drug war. At this point, I anticipate going about five episodes, but I'll make sure it'll be wrapped up by the end of the year. I'm still going to do an annual War on Christmas episode as well to close out 2019, so that's the plan. When we left off in talking about the drug war, Harry Anslinger, the nation's first drug czar, served in his role as Commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the precursor to the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA. He was not an elected representative or even a political appointee, per se. He was a bureaucrat through and through, who served during several presidential administrations, with both Republican and Democratic presidents at the helm. He started out under Herbert Hoover, a Republican president, His grand achievement, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, was signed into law by a Democratic president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he retired in Democratic President John F. Kennedy's second year in office. Leaving the Federal Bureau of Narcotics much more powerful than it was when he first started there. And this is an important thing to understand. These early drug laws and the targets of said drug laws weren't partisan. At this point in time, Illicit drugs and drug enforcement weren't particularly hot-button issues for those in power. Those who bore the brunt of the enforcement were primarily groups of people that those in power didn't concern themselves with in any deep way, if at all, except as convenient scapegoats. And while the next couple of episodes will focus primarily on Republican leaders, it's important to understand that the drug war in this country is not simply a product of one party but of a lot of very powerful people at various points in our history. There were specific actors that made notable decisions that made a huge difference, and that's primarily who we're focusing on in this series. But there were many others that were just as responsible or complicit, depending on where you stand on the drug war. So let's set the scene for where we are at this point in American history, because this will matter later. We're going to go back to 1960, during the presidential race between U.S. Senator John F. Kennedy and Vice President Richard Nixon, who served under Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower, we're getting out of the 50s at this point in time. The 1950s was a period of prosperity for much of the U.S. It was after World War II. The economy was doing well throughout much of the decade. This was a period of a growing middle class and suburbanization. And this was helped by the increased affordability of cars and the Eisenhower interstate system, which allowed people to live where they wanted to and quickly commute to work without relying on public transit. And all this prosperity and growth was financed with taxes under a federal tax system with overall higher taxes with a maximum 90 plus percent marginal tax rate on the most wealthy. But while the 1950s are often shaped as an idyllic time in America, there were issues. Oh yeah, there were issues. These were the early days of the Cold War, the escalation of tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union, the two major superpowers at the time. Because of this, the US was involved in the Korean War, which lasted from 1950 through 1953. The Korean War is one of the earlier proxy wars, 
where the superpowers indirectly fought each other by supporting existing militaries where the military conflicts were being waged. The Korean War was a civil war between North and South Korea, which led to Korea being formally divided into two countries and ended in a stalemate between the sides that is in place to this day. Now, stateside, the Cold War meant that Americans were in the throes of the Red Scare, and this included Congress. In the Senate, Senator Joseph McCarthy headed a crusade focusing on rooting out suspected communists in various areas of public life, oftentimes on trumped-up evidence or coerced testimony. And this done along with the work of the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, a much longer-lasting committee in the House of Representatives. First Amendment rights be damned. This was a really bad time to be a communist, or even be thought of as a communist in America. And the accusation of communism was often a way to disregard or silence other types of dissent. I touched on it a bit in the episodes on Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. earlier this year, but Dr. King and other civil rights leaders were often derided as communists or influenced by communists. And speaking of civil rights, the civil rights movement was underway, both in the courts and on a civic level, resisting about 80 years of Jim Crow racial segregation and widespread anti-Black terror that followed the Civil War and Reconstruction. The decision in Brown versus Board of Education, also known as Brown 1, was handed down in 1954, which stated that the separate but equal doctrine in place by Plessy versus Ferguson, an earlier court decision, was an oxymoron that separate is inherently unequal and therefore unconstitutional. And in the mid-1950s, the Montgomery bus boycott took place in Alabama, which began after Rosa Parks, in an act of civil disobedience, refused to give up her seat on a city bus to a white man. This eventually led to the integration of the city buses. This was also a time when women, including white women, had fewer rights and women were pretty much expected to be homemakers, and people who were LGBTQ were very much forced to be closeted. Few were out at the time, and homosexuality was classified as a mental disorder in the original Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, the Bible of Psychiatry in America. And homosexuality wasn't removed from the DSM until 1973 and don't even get me started on religion right now. So pretty much, if you weren't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant straight cisgender male, this would not have been a great time for you. And even then, with a major Cold War-inspired military conflict on the horizon, even if you were a WASP straight cis male, if you were young and not politically or financially connected, soon enough, things weren't gonna go well for you either. So we're at 1960, Eisenhower served two terms, and he was term limited by the U.S. Constitution. So at this point, we're looking at Kennedy versus Nixon. Kennedy, young and handsome, but not particularly outstanding as a politician up until that point. He wasn't as politically inexperienced as he is often framed as. He was a U.S. senator for eight years and was a House rep before that, but he was just not known for anything in particular. So when he stepped out on this national stage to run for president, he was perceived as being a bit of a noob. The other problem was that he was Catholic, which is not such a big deal to most of us now, but this was a huge deal back then. Nixon, on the other hand, 
was seen as a lot more experienced. He also had House and Senate experience, but his time in Congress was more remarkable, most notably helping expose accused Soviet spy Alger Hiss before later serving as VP under Eisenhower. Kennedy is known for his relative youth at this point, but Nixon wasn't that much older than Kennedy. The candidates were only four years apart in age, but they presented themselves like they could have been from different generations. The look would have been less important had the election been held years before, maybe even the previous presidential election cycle. After all, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt served while being wheelchair-bound, and this was during a time when people with disabilities were not as accepted. In addition, prior to that, Woodrow Wilson, who was president during the First World War, had a stroke and had essentially spent the year recuperating in bed while his wife ran the country. These were facts that the country didn't know back then. But the proliferation of television at this point meant that in this case, these three presidential debates that were coming up in 1960 would not just be on radio, they would also be televised. In the first presidential debate, the candidates were adjusting to a medium that was just starting to be used regularly to show political events. Of course, this will matter in a huge way over the next decade, but at this point, this was pretty new. Television itself wasn't brand new, but at this point, TVs were in most homes, and the technology was past what we would call today the early adopter stage. And as such, the candidates were coming into the debate differently and approached it differently. Richard Nixon was coming in recovering from a major knee injury and time in the hospital, so he had lost some weight. So coming in, he was looking a bit gaunt. On top of that, he refused to wear makeup before going on camera. As for JFK, he had been stumping in the South, and so he was tanned. It was also speculated that the tan may have also come from Addison's disease, a condition he is confirmed to have suffered from. But either way, his tan helped his appearance. It's disputed in a historical record as to whether or not he wore makeup before going on stage. But either way, his appearance on the black and white screen seemed more vibrant than Nixon. Then, once the debate started, the contrast between JFK and Nixon only continued. Kennedy looked into the camera when he answered questions, while Nixon looked at the reporters asking the questions. While Nixon's approach centered the reporters, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, Kennedy's approach centered the television viewers. This stylistic choice, along with the appearance factor, seems to have led Kennedy's poll numbers to surge following that debate. While Nixon did adjust in the other debates, it was too little too late. While Nixon came off as more knowledgeable in the first debate if listening on radio, the visual medium led television viewers to view Kennedy as the clear winner of the debate. After this point, John F. Kennedy never looked back and went on to win the 1960 presidential election. Outgoing Vice President Richard Nixon would learn from his mistakes in 1960. Over the next eight years, television would capture the tumultuous times to come, and those visuals would help Richard Nixon become more successful this time around. And with his eventual success in 1968, he would make his own mark on America's drug war. This is the 1960s. In the problems bubbling underneath the surface of American politics and society, 
would soon come to the fore. The beginning of the 1960s started out with the Cold War on America's doorstep. Communist revolutionary Fidel Castro became Cuba's leader at the end of the 1950s after the end of the Cuban Revolution, which overthrew the military regime of Fulgencio Batista, a U.S.-friendly dictatorship under which Cuba experienced extreme economic inequality. One of the things this regime change did was that it nationalized U.S. holdings in the country. This changed the regime to one that was ideologically similar to the Soviet Union and would establish diplomatic relations with the Soviets deeply concerned the U.S., both because of the strong economic stake the U.S. had in Cuba, plus geography. Cuba is only about 90 miles from the southernmost tip of Florida. So the U.S. executed the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, which was a CIA operation to overthrow Castro. But the operation was unsuccessful. Tensions continued to escalate between the countries, leading to the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the Soviet Union installed nuclear missiles in Cuba, leading to a nuclear standoff between the two superpowers. The world was on the brink of nuclear disaster until the two sides came to an agreement ending the standoff. But JFK's first term in office would be cut short. As on November 22, 1963, he would be assassinated while visiting Dallas, Texas. This would be just the beginning of a number of high-profile assassinations in the United States over the next five years, including civil rights leader Malcolm X in 1965, and both Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, JFK's brother and former U.S. Attorney General, in 1968. And this doesn't even include the multitude of other politically motivated murders that occurred in the U.S. over that period. Civil rights became an even more publicized issue in the 1960s as protest marches, freedom rides, and other tactics employed by civil rights activists to integrate the South became more commonplace. And with the increase in these demonstrations came increased resistance from pro-segregationist, pro-Jim Crow whites, some of whom were organized into white citizens' councils and Ku Klux Klan chapters, and others were part of police forces, and there was likely overlap. This led to violent clashes in the streets and murders of civil rights workers. I discussed this more in depth in the series on Martin Luther King Jr., released earlier this year, so if you haven't already, definitely check that out. Following JFK's assassination, Lyndon B. Johnson, JFK's vice president, took over the helm and later elected in his own right in 1964. As president, LBJ used Kennedy's death as additional leverage to encourage Congress to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. While LBJ pushed these reforms, as well as his more ambitious war on poverty as the decade continued, a lot of the reason why he backed these reforms was due to the civil rights movement being too persistent to ignore. But doing this had major consequences. On one hand, it was at this point when black Americans became a reliable democratic constituency. The black vote started migrating decades before from the GOP to the Democrats during Franklin Roosevelt's administration. But the 1960s really crystallized this change. But the new civil rights laws also led to a dealignment, where Southern whites, reliably a part of the Democratic Party since the Civil War, began leaving the Democratic Party, at least on a national level. 
They really didn't start crossing over to the Republicans until around the late 70s, early 80s, due to the Southern strategy. Now, even though Johnson was responsible for reforms considered progressive today, one area where he wasn't so progressive was war. The Vietnam War, also known as the Indochina War, was another proxy war where the U.S. and Soviet Union were indirectly fighting each other by aiding other parties in conflicts around the world. The Vietnam War can't really be its own arc, but I will summarize very, very briefly. The Vietnam War began in 1954 and had spun off from an earlier conflict with France over Vietnam's independence, as it had once been a French colony, French Indochina. This war was fought in Vietnam, as well as nearby Laos and Cambodia, countries that were also a part of French Indochina previously. And this was, in a nutshell, a civil war over who would control the region, whether it would be governed by a communist regime or a regime with ties to the West. The U.S. had been sending advisors and limited military personnel to the region since the 1950s, but in 1965, Lyndon Johnson began sending military troops on a much larger scale. At first, these were volunteer service members, but as the U.S. involvement in Vietnam raged, the federal government instituted the draft, meaning that young men who had not necessarily intended to be involved in a war would be forced to do so. Some men were able to claim educational or medical exemptions to avoid combat. <coughs> Bone spurs. <laughs> Others sought out conscientious objector status, but many who were drafted were legally forced to go. This led to demonstrations by young men burning draft cards, speaking out against the draft, and even moving to Canada to avoid conscription. The war itself had a lot of detractors, due to there not being a clear reason for the U.S. to be involved, no humanitarian goals, no real interests in the region outside of the Cold War policy of containment, in other words, keeping communism from spreading across the world. And not only that, the U.S. wasn't doing so well in the war. There were protests in the streets against this divisive war from different parts of what could be called the counterculture. Civil rights activists who had shifted focus to fighting discrimination against black Americans in the North, as well as resolving poverty more generally in opposition to a war that disproportionately involved them, as well as the New Left, which were young left-wing activists, mostly white, that supported feminism and civil rights, and questioned the war and establishment values. These groups were holding demonstrations, marches, and public protests against the war, and in favor of various progressive reforms. Then there were the riots. Urban riots throughout the decade, but especially after Dr. King's assassination. And there were other riots as well, including a huge riot outside of the Democratic National Convention in Chicago during the summer of 1968 in protest of the Vietnam War and the Democratic Party's support of the war. There was also another part of the counterculture that decided to give peace a chance. The hippies were a mostly young and white movement that focused on new age spirituality, free love, the use of psychedelic drugs like LSD, music, and communal living. Hippies as a label is typically used these days and even back then by establishment leaders to describe pretty much any young white person who was part of the counterculture. But that really wouldn't be accurate. Unlike other counterculture groups, the hippies weren't really political per se. A case can be made that choosing not to participate in the system at all is a political act. 
But what I mean is that the hippies weren't really political activists, as much as they were people who chose to step away from the culture and do something different. And because of their place in society, they had the privilege of being able to tune out all the conflict. But outside of hippie communes, morale in the United States was down and divisiveness was up. The country was split, many Americans were angry, and this anger was spilling out onto the streets. And this could be seen right on television. Speaking to the frustration of middle and upper class white Americans watching what was happening to their country was former Vice President Richard Nixon. In 1967, he wrote an article for Reader's Digest aptly titled, What Has Happened to America? In part, he writes, Quote, slipping standards. The symptoms are everywhere manifest in the public attitude toward police, in the mounting traffic in illicit drugs, in the volume of teenage arrests, in campus disorders, and the growth of white collar crime. The fact that whites looted happily along with Negroes in Detroit is ample proof that the affliction is not confined to one race. The shocking crime and disorder in American life today flow in large part from two fundamental changes that have occurred in the attitudes on many Americans. First, there is the permissiveness towards violation of the law and public order by those who agree with the cause in question. Second, there is the indulgence of crime because of sympathy for the past grievances of those who have become criminals. Our judges have gone too far in weakening the peace forces as against the criminal forces. Our opinion makers have gone too far in promoting the doctrine that when a law is broken, society, not the criminal, is to blame. Our teachers, preachers, and politicians have gone too far in advocating the idea that each individual should determine what laws are good and what laws are bad, and that he should then obey the law he likes and disobey the law he dislikes. Thus, we find that many who oppose the war in Vietnam excuse or ignore or even applaud those who protest that war by disrupting parades, invading government offices, burning draft cards, blocking troop trains, or desecrating the American flag. The same permissiveness is applied to those who defy the law in pursuit of civil rights. This trend has gone so far in America that there is not only a growing tolerance of lawlessness, but an increasing public acceptance of civil disobedience. Men of intellectual and moral eminence who encourage public disobedience of the law are responsible for the acts of those who inevitably follow their counsel, the poor, the ignorant, and the impressionable. For example, to the professor objecting to de facto segregation, it may be crystal clear where civil disobedience may begin and where it must end, but the boundaries have become fluid to his students and other listeners. Today in the urban slums, the limits of responsible action are all but invisible. End quote. The article illustrates Nixon's thinking, laying the groundwork for what would become the Southern strategy, a GOP strategy which uses statements demonizing Black Americans and Black progress using race-neutral language in order to encourage conservative white Southerners to join the Republican Party. The article also telegraphs future government policies, including drug policy, which we'll touch on a little later. Television was showing Americans more of the world than ever. The first televised war, assassination after assassination, black people protesting, young white people protesting, 
riots in the streets, and the kids tuning out all of it as if none of it was happening. For those Americans longing for their idyllic America of the 1950s, they just wanted the 1960s to end. So in came a candidate that wanted to end the 1960s too. This episode has us going back in time with a brief history of the 1960s, including a short foray into the Vietnam War. But we aren't the only ones going back in time. Shay and Wendy go back to the electric 1970s to the 1979 Academy Awards. They recently released a two-parter about the year's best picture, the winner being The Deer Hunter, a war film about American soldiers in Vietnam. But there were a lot of great contenders that year. Did any of the other nominated films match up? Should any of them have beaten out this classic? Listen to the latest from The Losers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher, or go to theloserspod.podbean.com. And for all the awesome podcasts of Flying Machine, go to flyingmachine.network slash shows. In 1968, Republican presidential candidate Richard Nixon came back stronger than ever, having learned from his failed 1960 presidential campaign with a new message that capitalized on what Americans had seen on television over the course of the decade and the anxiety many were feeling because of what they saw. Law and order. No more fighting, no more conflict, no more riots. The counterculture will be a thing of the past because as president, Richard Nixon will make these lawbreakers pay, bring order back to America, and the horror that was the 1960s will be over. And that's what he was now campaigning on. It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change. But in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Let us recognize that the first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. With the Democratic Party having lost a popular presidential candidate, Robert Kennedy, to assassination, they nominated Hubert Humphrey, but as I mentioned earlier, this nomination was marred by the DNC riots just outside. Humphrey was no match for Nixon and his law and order message, and Nixon won handily in the general election. So after he was elected, he got to work. Richard Nixon's main goal was to end the 1960s and the changes that were occurring, the marches, the protests, the riots, stop them, the counterculture who was going out of their way to be heard by a society and government that wanted to keep them silent and compliant. And a way to do that was treating drug use as criminal rather than as people medicating themselves in order to face or escape from a world that was constantly in flux. After Harry Anslinger retired from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1962, voices from the counterculture, as well as from the medical profession, felt more free to study drug use and speak out against punitive measures to curb it, 
leaning more into focusing on drug treatment for abuse. But in some other cases, especially when it came to hallucinogens, advocates such as psychologist and author Dr. Timothy Leary of Turn On, Tune In, Drop Out fame saw these drugs as being a net positive for users. Nixon viewed Leary as the most dangerous man in America. As president, Nixon wanted to use the drug war that Harry Anslinger started and take it to the next level. And the drugs he would primarily focus on were cannabis and opioids, particularly heroin. And in his first year as president, he spoke to Congress and held a bipartisan leadership meeting to discuss narcotics. Then in 1970, the Nixon administration began working on implementation. In March of that year, Nixon announced an anti-drug program that would primarily focus on using schools and other institutions to promote the message to children and teens that drugs were dangerous. In early 1971, President Nixon signed into law the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970. This was the first major piece of anti-drug legislation since the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. This act consolidated all existing drug laws into one and made it easier to tack on new regulations as part of this comprehensive law. This law also created an entire framework around drugs, including prescription as well as illicit drugs. In particular, Title II of the Act is called the Controlled Substances Act, which classified drugs into five categories, or schedules, based on potential for abuse, accepted medical use, and accepted safety under medical supervision. These schedules are set up from Schedule One, deemed to have a high potential of abuse, the potential to create severe dependence, and is unsafe with no accepted medical use, to Schedule Five, with low potential for abuse, potential to create only mild dependence at most, and safe with accepted medical use. This might seem straightforward. Most opioids, including heroin as well as ecstasy, are Schedule 1 drugs, and Robitussin AC is Schedule 5. But then again, cannabis is also a Schedule 1 drug. Yet fentanyl, responsible for the deaths of Prince and Tom Petty, as well as Oxycontin, one of the drugs that led to today's opioid epidemic, are ranked lower than weed. And guess what? So is cocaine, the drug that pretty much fueled the 70s and 80s. According to the logic of these drug schedules, it's better to do a line than to smoke a bowl. Clearly, this is not based on any medical science as much as it's based on political concerns. Over the next few years, Nixon continued to sign laws and issue executive orders aimed at curbing drug use mainly through law enforcement. He brought on Dr. Jerome Jaffe, a psychiatrist and White House consultant, as a special consultant to the President for Narcotics and Other Dangerous Drugs, or Drug Czar for short. Jaffe encouraged the President to support measures for drug treatment, and Nixon did sign into law the Drug Abuse Office and Treatment Act of 1972, which dedicated $300 million over the next three years to drug treatment and drug use prevention. Yet his dominant impulse was towards law and order, spurred on by domestic policy advisor John Ehrlichman with Executive Order 11641. Richard Nixon established the Office of Drug Abuse Law Enforcement, an agency within the Executive Office of the President. He also sought $600 million from Congress for drug enforcement measures and pushed law enforcement to crack down on drug arrests, particularly for heroin and cannabis and drug arrests doubled over Nixon's first term 
disproportionately focused on black communities and the white counterculture. This tough on drugs and tough on crime messaging and the actual drug crackdowns on the right people helped Nixon get reelected in 1972. Nixon's war on drugs, as he now called it, continued during his second term. The Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, was formed in 1973 as a spiritual successor to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and other drug-related government agencies, and their aim was to wage the war on drugs by collecting intelligence on illicit drugs and rooting out drug production and trafficking both stateside and abroad. The DEA had been a major force in drug enforcement and had found itself as a source of controversy over time. I'm sure we'll revisit that later on in the series. In 1974, Nixon supported additional legislation that would increase funding as well as sentencing requirements for drug dealers. But by this time, the president was embroiled in his own problems due to the Watergate scandal, and Richard Nixon resigned from office on August 9, 1974. But the thing is, Nixon's iteration of the drug war didn't have to be this way. At the time, there was a long-standing tradition starting with President Theodore Roosevelt in 1909, of holding meetings about once a decade dedicated to improving children's lives in the United States. In 1969, Nixon appointed Stephen Hess to head his iteration of the White House Conference of Children and Youth. Hess was tasked with listening to, quote, the voices of young Americans in the universities, on the farms, the assembly lines, the street corners, end quote with the idea of being to gather their opinions on U.S. domestic and foreign policy. The conference was held over five days in April of 1971, involving Hess and close to 1,500 delegates. Part of this conference included a drug task force made up of eight young people and four adults. This task force argued in favor of addressing the root causes behind drug abuse. And in part, this is what they wrote in their report to the president. Quote, the White House Conference Drug Task Force must address itself to the causes of drug abuse as well as the solutions. We acknowledge that drug abuse is largely a symptom of the individual's inability to cope with his immediate personal environment. However, it must be understood that deep societal ills increase the individual's sense of personal alienation. Specifically, our society has permitted the perpetuation of the Indochina War, of institutional and personal racism, of the pollution of our environment, and of the urban crisis. The American people as a whole must deal immediately with these problems. The President of the United States has the special burden of providing moral and political leadership to our people. To date, this administration, as previous administrations, has failed to net this burden of leadership. We call on the President to respond immediately to our urgent concerns. Foremost, we call upon the president to end the war in Indochina now and to apply our natural and human resources to our domestic needs. Should the administration respond to these issues, more young people of America will become motivated and contributing members of society. Conversely, if the administration does not respond to these issues, we risk having even larger numbers of young people dropping out of a society which has great need of their contribution. End quote. But, Nixon decided to go in a completely different direction. He believed in the idea that drug users were criminals, so it would be necessary to decrease social welfare funding and direct that funding towards fighting crime. So in other words, law enforcement. 
He also sought to divide the options of criminalizing drug users and of drug treatment. His would be the last presidential administration where more was spent on drug treatment than drug enforcement. But during his presidency, his actions started the path towards federal government from the top on down, favoring funding towards law enforcement at the expense of drug treatment. And at this point, legalization was off the table. Nixon's war on drugs, as well as a number of other factors, such as COINTELPRO and other government operations seeking to break up civil rights and new left organizations that I won't really be able to cover here, ended the 1960s. And even though Richard Nixon couldn't finish out his second term, he was successful in the goal that would make his white middle and upper class constituents happy, at least for a time. According to John Ehrlichman, Nixon waged the war on drugs to root out his enemies. In 1994, two decades after going down with Nixon's administration as a co-conspirator due to Watergate, he was quoted as saying, quote, You want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black but getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. Now, we'll never know for sure if Nixon was so direct in his reasons for pursuing the war on drugs. Ehrlichman had plenty of motive to drag his former boss, since he had been convicted of several charges in relation to Watergate, which led to prison time and loss of his law license. But at the same time, a motive like this wasn't out of the realm of possibility for Nixon. Outside of the war on drugs, Nixon did have an enemies list. He was shown not to be above outright breaking laws and had a complicated record on race on one hand having backed the most expansive race-based affirmative action programs than any other president before or since, but on the other hand was featured on tape making derogatory statements about Black and Jewish people and got the aforementioned Southern strategy up and running. The drugs that the Nixon administration targeted, heroin and cannabis, tended to be the drugs that were associated the most with Black Americans and counterculture whites at that time. And there was a simple reason for Black people and counterculture white people to be viewed as enemies, because by 1968, both groups were much more likely to oppose Republicans and oppose their policies on the war, which Nixon didn't end U.S. involvement in until his second term, economics, and of course, drugs. So to have a political motive for the drug war wouldn't be surprising. But even if we take Nixon at face value that he wanted to bring back law and order, it does bring up a fundamental question. This is important for both the drug war, as we'll continue to discuss in the rest of the series, as well as other issues that involve law enforcement and criminal justice. Does the act of breaking the law make someone inherently immoral? Some laws are meant to protect the public and keep us safe, like laws against murder, rape, assault. But there are other laws, laws made to be broken. In other words, Laws that exist primarily to funnel certain types of people into the system. Nowadays, the most salient example of this is the Trump administration's immigration policy. Trump's regime continues to change the regulations regarding both immigrants arriving through the southern border seeking legal asylum, as well as ones already living here, 
affecting the status of people ranging from those who have been here documented for a while to the children of U.S. military service members living abroad. And going back to the drug war, statistically speaking, Black Americans' propensity for drug use or selling drugs is similar to that of white Americans, but Black Americans are more than two times as likely to be arrested for drug-related crimes. In reality, this means two sets of laws for two different groups of people, not much different from Jim Crow. In the case of the war on drugs, we'll get more into the long-term effects in later episodes, but the success of drug laws in affecting public safety is dubious at best. But on the other hand, in general, once you become known to the criminal justice system, it's extremely difficult and in some cases impossible to escape it, even if you never break another law in your life. That is why the argument, you don't have to worry about it if you don't commit crimes, is problematic, because it assumes at its very core that laws are inherently just and fair in their creation and enforcement. Yet time and time again, history shows that this is not necessarily true. Today, many evangelicals will point to the Bible, particularly Romans 13, to make the case that obeying government authorities is the moral correct thing to do. And politicians such as former U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions have used this to great effect. But while they lean into this one passage in the Bible to the exclusion of many others, it's a popular sentiment not only for evangelicals, but for most Americans, especially those who haven't historically been the targets of law enforcement in the criminal justice system. But beyond the fact that most don't clearly believe this for themselves when they don't like the authority in power, see President Obama, pro-choice legislation, as well as non-discrimination regulations for businesses, it shields them from any consideration that the laws themselves could be born with unjust aims in mind, or that execution of these laws could lead to harmful consequences that outweigh any intended good. Not all laws are good laws. Not all authorities are good authorities. And deep down, I'm sure they know this too. Next time, we're going to get into the Reagan drug war, including the crack epidemic, the law that created a legal difference in charges and sentencing between crack versus powder cocaine, First Lady Nancy Reagan's Say No to Drugs campaign, and the D.A.R.E. program. <laughs> D.A.R.E. So stay tuned for that in the next two weeks. Thank you so much for listening to Pastor or Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to pastorpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. If you subscribe, you can get new episodes once they come out so you don't miss it. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. This encourages other people to find and listen to this podcast. And follow me on Twitter at PostorCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.